All right, welcome to a Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through a cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. I'm Lauren, and joining me tonight are... Andre. James. And Ryan. And this night, we're actually opening up Season 2, the Super Black Season of the Black Movie Podcast, with 1997's Eve Bayou, uh, the directorial debut of Cassie Lemon, who you might remember as Bernie from Candyman, the blackest of all horror films. And also one of the scariest. Eve's Bayou is basically a Southern Gothic coming of age slash family melodrama about a young girl named Eve, who's named after a slave ancestor, um, for which the town that she lives in is also named uh, Eve's Bayou. And uh, it tells the story of a fateful summer where she witnesses her father having an affair and her family begins to crumble under the weight of its own guilt and indiscretions. I always think of this film as being kind of uh, under the radar. Like, I've loved this film since the first time I saw it way back in the 90s on TV. But every time I've mentioned it, no one's ever heard of it before. No one's ever seen it. But it did win a lot of awards and not just black ones either. For both its, you know, child performing actor, uh, Journey Smollett, when she was a little girl, but also Debbie Morgan as Best Supporting Actor for the Chicago Film Critics Award. Samuel Jackson won for the Acapulco Black Film Festival. Um, so even has gotten Spirit Awards and Image Awards galore, both nominations and awardees. Uh, so it's a really beautiful film, in my opinion, but I'm really curious to hear what you guys thought. Did anyone actually see this film before we watch it for the podcast? Yes, I, I, I've seen it before. Um, uh, like Lauren, I watched East Bayou first on probably like TNT or TBS during a hot summer with nothing else to do. It is the perfect mood to have your first viewing of the movie that way. And likewise, it had always been something that stuck in my memory and was have been really disappointed about finding out how few people have seen this movie. Right. And the movie itself is a whole mood, especially the cinematography. We'll get to that piece. So I'm curious what your overall first impressions were, Andre and James, given that this is the first time you've seen it. How about James? Let's start with you. So I had heard of this movie, but I hadn't seen it. And this I think is the first of our movies that is an incredibly well-made movie that I just didn't like. Like I could tell that it was really well constructed, like the acting in it was pretty good, but it's just something about the characters and like the overall story that was being told that I just couldn't connect to. So this was like, I, I found myself like looking at my phone a lot, like not looking up stuff, but like my phone was on the table and I would like glance over at it like maybe I should pick my phone up. So I don't know exactly what it is. I'm curious to hear what everyone else's thoughts were, but it just it wasn't for me. I wrote at the bottom of my notes. This is the weirdest superhero origin story I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, just as like a fun little joke for that uh, for like my thoughts on the movie. But yeah, I, I did not enjoy this one. Yeah, it was, there were some production things that were noticeable, some that I could let pass, but given thinking about how tough it is to work with uh, film, which they probably did for this movie, mm -hmm. actually, there's no probably, there's like a 99.9% .9 chance that they uh, worked with a old school film in this movie. They shot in 35 millimeter, yeah. And like, there's some stuff I was able to overlook because of that, but it was... I don't know, that story just bothered me in so many ways and not in the typical ways that you would expect. Like it didn't it wasn't always cohesive to me. Ryan, what's your feeling? 
I don't know. I, I still have like a lot of positive feelings toward the movie. This also was probably influenced by my taste in a bunch of like Gothic lit when I was Southern Gothic lit when I was younger and a bunch of the Shakespearean illusions that happened in the movie. I, I absolutely ate that stuff up as a kid. I still was tickled by it by it now. There's also some some really clever and interesting editing that happens in some of the scenes that is really, especially with uh, Moselle, Eve's auntie, that really, I feel like, capture the 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 weight of the stories that are being told. But I, I mostly, I, I came away from it looking at the, the performances in this and feeling really drawn into how those characters were depicted and rendered. And I... I think I still have that. I, I, I'm, it's, I, I, I can't look at this and not know how few coming of age type movies are featuring black girls as protagonists. Last season we covered Akilah and the Bee, which is one of them. There's this, and there's like the last girl on the IRT, or the three that come in my mind when I think about that most of the time. But it's a, it's a very underexplored space, and I. Having something that just gives young characters and young black girls interiority in the way that this movie did was was is still something that like papers over probably some of the things that are rougher um, in the story. If you weren't the type to seek out like Toni Morrison books where everything's tragic and everybody suffers forever, <laughs> then like I can definitely see this being um, tough to watch. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I I do really like this movie despite like some of its flaws, even though I don't actually like the characters themselves, I like the way the story talks about them and what happens to them. And part of that's because it's very reminiscent of old melodramas. I love old movies. And if you look at old melodramas from the forties and fifties and sixties, where every character really is like the cause of their own destruction in some sort of way, this is very much uh, is similar to that in the way it presents characters and their struggles. But then it pairs that with like a really interesting, almost sort of like excuse to blame, right? It's basically scapegoats the supernatural in a lot of ways, or they scapegoat the supernatural. And I think it leads to some really interesting explorations of like guilt and how people relate to each other in a tight family unit. But since since James mentioned initially that he also didn't like the characters, I think it's interesting to talk through like who those characters are, right? So the main character is Eve, who's 10 years old, and she starts off the movie talking about how she was 10 years old the summer she killed her father. That's the very first, you know, in the very first line. Her dad is played by Samuel Jackson. He plays Louis Batiste, sort of like a local town doctor who's pretty well off for this time in this location. His long-suffering wife, Roz, is played by... Uh, Lynn Whitfield, uh, who's amazing. Uh, and the oldest sister is played by Megan Good, who I will admit right now, I do not like and have never liked. I've had an enmity towards her since I was a child. And there's no real rationale for it, but I have to just say that right now. We and... have to normalize being allowed to just dislike people instead of having to come up with a moral case. I think yeah, it's totally I, fair. I don't have one. Thank also, you. I appreciate also, that. especially after this movie, like, yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. It may have been because I think I may have seen her in this movie first, but I just instantly disliked her from then on out. And then, of course, uh, you've got their little brother, played actually by uh, Journey Smollett's real-life brother, Jake Smollett. So it's sort of a bit of a family affair. 
And then they, you know, round out, they have a grandmother and um, not in the family, but still integral to the story is sort of like the, the old voodoo witch of the town played by Diane Carroll, who is amazing in all things and a national treasure. Um, and so much of this film really does take place just focused on this family uh, and the, some of their interactions with other folks in their town. But one of the things I've always been struck by is that this is not the typical black Southern family that you tend to get in movies. This is a really well-to-do Creole family that has money and they live in a big plantation style house and they dress fancy every day and they read Shakespeare. And it was just really nice to see in the same way that people always liked the Cosby show because it showed another type of black life that you didn't typically get on television. I think this is a type of black life you don't typically get in cinema that often, or at least you didn't at this point you know, in the 90s. But James, tell me, what didn't you like about the characters? I think for me, the struggle I had is that I, co I couldn't connect with any of them. For me, the character that I probably felt the closest to was Poe. Um, and he was like barely in the movie and barely did anything. But he reminded me so much of me when I was a kid. I was the reluctant, like smaller, younger brother. But outside of that, like I just couldn't buy into their connection like i felt it very difficult to care about like the plight of the characters and and maybe it's because they all like you said cause their own problems but for me i was like well why would you do this or like i kept i found myself questioning a lot some of their like actions and then the other thing that i think as we're talking that i realize i don't like about this movie and we may get to this a little bit later um in the overall story but, like, I think there's a lot of really interesting little stories in this movie that, like, coherently don't connect together in a way that feels satisfying to me. What about you, Andre? I'm curious what, what you didn't like about it. As far as the characters go, I actually like the characters, mainly because it felt like, even though they were tough to connect to, it felt like they were people that I knew. Not specific people, but it's just like, oh, yeah, I know that dude that, you know, you know, that, you know, does that or I know that little girl or I know, you know, know that auntie, you know, things like that. And so I actually thought that that was fine. And all the performances were, were actually very good. But yeah, for me, it was just a story because one, I'm not a fan of melodramas. I kind of sit opposite of Lauren on that. But also like the editing bothered me. Not in terms of like editing within a scene. I actually thought that was very well done. But like we would get these jarring cuts to where it's like everything's sad. Everything's, you know, not going well. And instead of getting some sort of like little like resolution or transition, we'd instantly just, you know, be teleported to a moment that seems completely irrelevant where everyone's happy. And it's just like, well, wait, what happened between everyone hating each other to everyone being happy. And that happened way too often in this movie to go unexplained. On top of that, there was a lot of rather heavy handed foreshadowing to where I felt like, Oh yeah, I could figure, you know, this is, you know, this is what's going to happen. That, you know, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. I'm kind of being, what's the right word? Um, cryptic, I suppose, because, you know, we're not in spoiler territory, but yeah, it was it was a bit predictable, too. I, I, I agree with you that it was predictable. I think that if I had forgotten any part of the part of the plot, 
I remembered it within seven minutes of starting the movie. But I think that uh, similar to the, I, I mentioned that the the Shakespearean illusions are there. It's it's set up like a Greek tragedy, like where you have all the all the ingredients there uh, right at the beginning, and you know what these fatal flaws are, and you just you, you set all that all those gears in motion, and you just wait for it to all come together. I can understand not being engaged uh, by that in the same way. However, I I actually think that the the cuts between those 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 really intense and sad moments or or angry moments and then back to the the happy normal family life uh pieces are actually instructive. I I think that it kind of shows how appearances and the and keeping up the the myth of this well-to-do family that keeps all together, you know, he's a good man despite all the not good man stuff he's doing. And your mother's the most beautiful person in the world, despite all the not good stuff he's doing. I, I, I feel like it shows how everyone else is supposed to see them and how they are trying to present themselves. And then you have these moments of where it all falls apart because it, it can't last. It can't last amid like any kind of real scrutiny or any kind of real conversations or discussions. Ryan, you mentioned like the, the Greek tragedy and, and basically seeing like ev- seeing wanting to sort of watch everything like sort of collapse and, and how that's going to happen. And I, I think for me, the the mystery there is I see all of these like uh, powder kegs that are about to explode. And I'm just like waiting for that to happen and sort of trying to figure out like how that's going to work out. But I think for this movie, why that didn't work for me is that because of the opening line, we knew sort of what was going to happen. And so it was less of like, I want to wait and see how this happens and more of like, okay, well, I have a pretty solid understanding of like what's going wrong in this movie. And there's a couple of details that you might not get from the very beginning, but like that party scene, I think basically sets it up of, okay, like now I, I see sort of how we're going to get to the end result. And so the journey there, I think just wasn't as enticing as it might be in some other kind of tragedies. I think that's an interesting perspective because I I think I definitely agree with that in some cases. I think there's two ways that storytellers can approach that kind of structure, right? In some ways, you can surprise people with what's happening. Like the goal is for folks to not necessarily know the end result, but like be surprised in how we get there. And in this case, I think telling you the end result, um, what happens by the end of the film is meant so that you spend less time thinking about, well, I wonder what's going to happen and more time watching the tiny signs and details um, inside of it, right? It's sort of like watching a movie you've already seen before. You actually are freed up to think more about the other things happening, right? Because every time I watch a movie, second or third or fourth time, I catch these details in the background I didn't catch the first time. And I think that's some part of what's happening in this film is that you're not meant to pay attention necessarily to the fact that she gives you the end of the plot, the very first couple of lines by saying, you know, I killed my father. Well, you don't really know how she kills her father, for one thing. So there's still that kind of a secret. But mostly you're like, okay, so I know that this family ends in tragedy. I can obviously see sort of how that's happening. The dad's at this party. He's obviously well-loved by the women. He loves the women back. Like, it's obvious sort of where this is going. But what is supposed to be compelling is the emotional journey each person is taking. So if you're not really compelled by an individual's emotional journey, it's maybe not that interesting of a film. 
But I think if that's something that's a focal point for you in a story, I think this film does that okay. And I, to, to Ryan's point, like especially focusing on a younger uh, main character who doesn't really understand what's happening, right? She at the you know in that first party scene stumbles, she's asleep in in the in the carriage house and like wakes up and sees her dad, you know, having sex with uh, a neighbor, but she doesn't really know what she's seen. She's 10 years old. Like it's still kind of a blur. He quickly tries to like smooth over it. And her sister then tells her, this is not what you saw. So really for her, it's a, uh, it's less about like the path that gets there more about the emotional trauma of actually like losing some of the innocence of who she thought she, her dad was. Right. And like how the film explores that going forward. And if you're more invested in that story, I think it's actually a a really interesting way of approaching a storytelling. I I agree with you. And I think that there's also, you know, Andre talked about a bunch of the little, like smaller stories in this. I was absolutely fascinated by uh, Debbie Morgan's uh, performance as Moselle, E's auntie, who definitely has visions and is able to sort of see the future slash see, you know, the present answer requests and things that, you know, we're told is very, you know, it's, it sounds pretty voodoo adjacent. It may not be full on voodoo, but like there, although there's a couple of times where she actually does dip into that well, but it was, it was interesting to me to see the juxtaposition of, you know, her talking about, you know, okay, you know, we're going to pray for the Lord to take care of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And also, like, I'm telling you that, you know, your husband's in Detroit. Like, like someone's in Detroit, they're, you know, you're going to find them in a hospital in six days. And those, that like, that juxtaposition feels really familiar to me when I think about my extended family who are, who are from the French Quarter in, in New Orleans and, and very much have that just as part of just part and parcel of their existence and since they're alongside of their other religiosity and her own story and you know she occasionally when she slips into some of these visions or memories of her past um, talking about how she had lost three husbands you know by by the midpoint of the film and the the witch in town diane carroll's character elzora says that she's a black widow which is pretty great but she really takes that to heart. And I think that, you know, there's a few moments where she's recalling and retelling stories about um, her past loves um, to Eve that in that, in that whole stretch of her dealing with that hurt and recognizing, you know, where she's let love, where she's let love go, where she's made mistakes actually serves as an interesting parallel to, uh, to her brother, to, uh, to Eve's father, uh, Lewis. Um, and she's she actually remarks multiple times in the film that they are very very alike. The only difference is is that she can't have children, so there's no there's no children to catch her in the act. And I think that that was like a really interesting dichotomy in terms of how, whether they were able to stay true to their desires um, or actually change as people throughout the film. It felt like she was able to change a little bit, and Lewis wasn't. Okay, so I have a question, and I'm going to consider this not a spoiler because it happens in like the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie. What happens to Harry? Like, I I understand that, like, he died, but like, how? Did I, did I just miss like a scene somewhere that made that make sense? 
I feel like uh, they kind of hinted at that with that he died in a car accident with the uh, with some of the, they kind of went through that uh, sort of montage that they do for all of the visions. And then in that vision, there was, you know, two cars coming together or two cars. And then was, I feel like it was the sound effects of like a collision or like that typical like screeching of the brakes. Okay, so I thought that. Did, was that supposed to have happened that night? Because, like, they didn't seem to be concerned about Moselle at all. And so that's why I was like, did they get in a car accident tonight and he died, but she, like, walked away seemingly fine? Uh, Yeah, that's what is heavily implied there, which kind of gets to some of my issues with some of the story and the editing. And, you know, me talking about how it wasn't always cohesive. I mentioned earlier the point about how we would cut from like just dramatic changes between scenes, uh, pretty like stark and dramatic changes between scenes. And like, that's one, you know, some of the cuts that we're making, but also too, it felt like, it felt like you would just lose information going into different scenes and like, you'll lose context for like what's going on. Like the whole deal with the pineapple thing, that 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 had me sitting there wondering, like, why why is this even here? Like this this shouldn't like this doesn't even this doesn't even matter. And then it kind of gets, you know, paid off later in the movie. But it was just like, like this this is just random. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, you're not alone in kind of losing some of the information and context around some of the events in the in the movie. Yeah, I do want to go back to what Andre said, because I completely agree with Andre, especially for that first scene, but I just really want to throw out this piece of trivia. Do you guys know the British progressive rock band, Pineapple Thief? No. no. Well, there's a band, there's a band, apparently, it's a British band called Pineapple Thief that got their name from this movie. I, there is an interview with, I think, the lead singer. Um, I don't actually listen to the band, so I'm not exactly sure like which what he what he did in the band. But he was talking about how he had, you know was sitting down watching this like indie film uh, called Eve's Bayou that you know pe- wasn't well known, and that there is a scene where a little girl gets called a pineapple thief by Elzora, and he was like, oh, that sounds great, and that's what he called his band, and I'm like, that's amazing, thank you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, amazing. just wanted to share that with you. Um, God bless. <laughs> absolutely but no i agree with andre i do think that that first um particularly that vision of what happens to the uncle early in the movie right after the party is is poorly done because i had no idea exactly what happened it's disorienting and maybe it's meant to be disorienting because losing a loved one is itself disorienting but since that movie since that whole transition was supposed to one signify his death which is a you know should be a fairly big deal at this point and kind of a, a a plot point. But also I think it's supposed to signify Eve herself gaining her own second sight, which is relatively new for her. Her aunt has always had it, but now she also obviously has this gift. And so they don't really, because I think it's not really well explained that like she sort of touches the uncle, they say goodbye. She has a vision of like the car crashing because Moselle can see other people's futures, but she can't see her own. So that was actually Eve's premonition, but they don't do a good job of explaining that or explaining why that's significant or like actually tying those pieces together. So you do lose a lot of like what's happening. You just cut to Mazel, who's just kind of a wreck. I think there could have been ways to do that a lot better. 
No, I agree. And I, I definitely think that showing someone other than uh, Eve mourning with her would have been effective. And I wasn't sure whether that didn't happen because she's not taken seriously by Roz or, or you know, or her brother Lewis as, as much. Later on in the film, Lewis throws out as a non sequitur that like, oh, you know, she's not unfamiliar with like the inside of a mental hospital as a way to be dismissive of her visions and gifts. Uh, his his mother, you know, Eve's grandmother, clearly knows that this is a thing and fights a little bit. But it feels like so much of the time where we see Moselle is strictly through Eve's eyes because everyone else just dismisses her as as the forever alone going to kind of sort of slightly cursed uh, lady. And they just don't seem to take her as seriously. Whereas Eve sees, gets to, gets to like, wants to sit in her home and watch her do visions and readings for people. She loves to eavesdrop and hear about the things going on and in, in the ways that she's using that ability to help people. And I think that there is much more kinship between, between Eve and Moselle than we ever really see between like even her own mother. Does it bother anyone else that um, Lynn Whitfield and Megan Good looked a lot alike, but that the Smollett kids and the aunt looked the most alike? And I'm like, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it was actually very distracting for me in a lot of ways because like the resemblance is so very striking between Debbie Morgan and Journey Smollett and Jake Smollett at that point. And it was almost like she was really their mom instead. And so it kind of maybe visually tied them together in some ways and separated her from her mother in the film. But yeah, it kept throwing me off. Yeah, I thought that too. And I, in, until I had made the connection that Moselle and Lewis were siblings, I thought it was, I thought Harry was Lewis's sibling and it was going to be revealed that Moselle was their mom. And then, of course, that didn't really shake out. So it, it it was a little bit strange to me. And honestly, I think it probably would have been a little less strange without Jake Smollett in the movie. Because then I think the story starts making more sense of, okay, well, Eve is more similar to Moselle and has inherited this vision sort of thing like Moselle has. And then Megan uh, is more similar to Lynn and, and, sort of their personalities match better. So I think that could have like made a better, stronger connection if that's what they're trying to do. But I think Poe like breaks that whole logic. Cause he doesn't really have a connection with anyone in this movie. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I don't really know what they were trying to say or do there. How did you feel about Lewis and Samuel Jackson's Creole accent? I think we can't neglect to talk about that. Woo. Yeah. Samuel Jackson is from my home state of Tennessee, so I can't speak any ill about any of his accents. Do you want to just write it down and we'll say it out loud for you? <laughs> um, it, uh, it, he was, this is not his specialty, but I thought Lewis was not a good character. I think it's an interesting character, though, and I think it was interesting that they set up that, like, he was always like that, and maybe... Roz thought he would be different in some way after they got married, and that just didn't happen. He just never grew up and became, like, a real adult. I think that's particularly interesting. But, like, I think Samuel L. Jackson did just a fine job in the role. 
I will say it was nice to see him other than the typical Samuel L. Jackson roles. And so, you know, this was, yeah, it was just, it was, it was refreshing to, to see that, you know, that he's trying to like, basically, instead of being like, uh, Nick Fury or, um, was another character, uh, the character that's in, uh, uh, the, the, you know, my, you know, Hitman's bodyguard movie, you know, that, you know, just generic character that he plays that's always, you know, using profanity and being very demonstrative. Like, it's like more of like, oh, he's trying to be more, you know, suave isn't the right word for most of the movie, but he's trying to be more, uh, shoot, I had the word and lost it. It was a D&D word. I just lost Charisma. it. It was a D and D word. That nerds. I'll, I'll take you know, like what is charisma <laughs> for, and I'll take D and D words for four hundred. He was rolling those nat twenties with charisma on everybody except for his wife. Well, I think that the problem is that he he rolled it on his wife while she was still trying to run that same campaign. Uh, anyway, I think that I, I think that his charisma actually was really well utilized here. I really hate movies that try to pretend that some of these stellar actors and actresses don't just have an incredible magnetism to them. You know, we put glasses on them and now they're supposed to be a dork. When it's just like, come on, listen to this person. You can't not be drawn in some ways into their into their world when they're talking to you. And I think that the very particular positionality, I guess, is the best word I've got for it, of Louis uh, Batista's of uh, being one of the only black doctors and probably the only black doctor locally around and therefore being a minor celebrity in the time and location period this takes place. It, uh, we'll talk about it more when we get to the spoiler territory, but like he very much was like, uh, not, not just a pillar of the community, but also like a giant point of pride and someone who was irresistible to a number of, a number of folks in town for, all those all those reasons him not being able to control himself even though there's clearly like where it clearly gets around pretty easily in this town and i truthfully don't know how this was a secret this long honestly i in, in truth i don't think it was ever a secret i think it was the kind of thing where Roz was willfully ignorant and it was very much just a don't put our dirty laundry on display kind of thing don't you know like do whatever you're gonna do just don't embarrass me is the the black mom phrase that came in my mind uh thinking about this film but but i thought that he he played the character in a really in a really believable way like like the through line of yes he cares about his children yes he cares about his wife but he he's for all the women in the world to enjoy is very much you know through a through line for everything that happens yeah he does say at some point in the movie that, you know, he is a hero to a particular kind of woman and he kind of needs to be that hero sometimes. And while it wasn't really the point of the film, I do think it would have been interesting to hear and see more about him because he really isn't even in most of the movie. Like he's talked about all the time and he kind of like his shadow looms over everything in the movie, but he himself is actually not actually on screen that much. Although when he is on screen, he is very charismatic because he's Samuel Jackson and his character is meant to be that way. It's magnetic, but he's just not there that often. And so I'd be curious to know more about his own internal struggles with what's happening. 
And part of this, like, I will say, like, is personal for me because my dad, minus the whole doctor thing, was totally Lewis. Well, is totally Lewis, right? Like, in every every possible way, right? So I definitely understood and related well to Eve because I've had that sort of experience. And I've had that kind of dad. And it's really interesting to see someone who is so beloved but also so terrible at the same time. And it really does show you how people are shades of gray, right? They're not all one thing or the other. And it's maybe not as black and white as it should be, which is why I think that it's interesting that black and white is such a motif in this film, particularly when it comes to visions. It's used constantly. And I haven't quite figured out what exactly it's articulating in a lot of ways, but I do feel like it's sort of tied to that feeling that we perceive things in a black and white way, even when they're not. I, I think that for the black and white piece, I I definitely felt like there was a moment in the film where I felt like the reason it was in black and white was because it made it hard what you were seeing. Because without the shades of gray, without the color, you can't, like, you can see this future, but you can't fully interpret it. So one of the big plot points was, uh, was it Moselle or the... Yeah, Moselle had um, a vision about a kid getting hit by a car or a bus. And Roz is so freaked out. Now, again, Roz, who's like dismissed her sister's visions, uh, her sister-in-law's visions before and kind of, you know, shut on the rug. But upon hearing this and confirmation from uh, from Grammaire, uh, from uh, the grandmother, literally just says, OK, you kids are locked in the house this entire summer because those visions always come true and I'm not about to have one of y'all hit by a car and y'all are just going to have to learn how to crochet or play sorry or whatever else is going to happen in this house. And they're in like a bunch of things happen during this, during this like brief period. But I got to say, I wrote in my notes that the sincere and exuberant joy when like, a different kid gets hit by a bus and killed and they're just like, yay, we're free. Like some other kid died. <laughs> it was just like really twisted. I'm glad that, a, that like a character actually mentioned that like, Hey, that's really kind of messed up. But like, no, like she would like Roz was like, actually like her smile lit up. Might be one of the biggest smiles she had in the movie. <laughs> it was like, but some other kid just died you all can go out and play in the woods now. Yeah, that was a great scene. <laughs> oh yeah. man, that reminded me of when you're at your when you and your like close fan, friends are together, and you guys just go way too far, and you all know that you're you've gone too far, but everyone's okay with it. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Uh, yeah, uh, one thing about the black and white scenes, and I, I have no idea if this was intentional. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but Eve's visions were all for me anyways, much harder to make out. Like, I think she has one about what happens towards the end of the movie. And then she has one, you know, about the car crash that we talked about earlier. And those were seemingly like very shaky, very dark, like shadowy, like you couldn't quite make out the details. But when Moselle has the visions of the people who like come and visit her, she's telling them whatever they need to hear. Those I thought were super clear. Like I could tell exactly what was going on. You could tell how she was getting to the information she was telling them. I don't know if they were trying to use that as a like Moselle is more skilled at this. And that's why her visions are clear 
or if that's just the way that those scenes happened to be shot when they were filmed. But no, I, I, th- I think you're right. I, I thought there was a connection. Lizelle definitely was catching people in 4K. I don't know how. It, it was so clear compared to everything else, which is why she was able to just go like, oh, yes, you're going to find this person on the park bench. Um, you know, six thirty outside the McDonald's on Fourth Street next Sunday. She, she was yeah. so pinpoint with it um, that, like, it really is kind of hilarious. That, like, I mean, I, I guess it's useful to know that, like, even if Eve really understood what she was seeing, because um, she doesn't actually talk about her visions much, if at all, in the movie. Um, you see her, them having, you see her having them. You make the connection. You understand what's going on, but. Even if she told somebody, nobody would believe her. She doesn't have, you know, the high-resolution capture that Moselle does. She can't tell exactly what's going to happen. She just knows, like, something-something train, something-something, someone falls over, everybody's sad. That's all I got. I mean, the movie, like, does a lot with the idea of vision and memory and what's clear and not clear in a lot of ways. And it's not... One of the things that's not clear is like for Eve, if it's because she's young and thus her powers are new, so to speak, like to the point about it being a superhero origin story, um, like, is she just learning that or is it because she's young and she just does not understand the, how to use them and they're actually like full strength or she doesn't actually know what she's saying or what's happening? I honestly kind of wish that had been like explored a little bit more. Uh, I think this goes back to the thing I said earlier about there being a lot of small like plot points. This storyline with uh, the visions and the her connection with her aunt and the derision that her aunt derision I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for but um, that her aunt had received for having these visions like I thought that in and of itself could have been an interesting story of her having to like deal with this world that doesn't accept her she's having to hide the fact that she's having these visions from her family because she knows what happened to her aunt. And then finding some sort of solace in Elzora, who she interacts with later in the movie. Like, I think that could have been really interesting, but you, you don't really get any of Eve's vision stuff other than at the beginning and basically at the end. Like the middle part effectively ignores that she has had this vision and like it has impacted her in any real way. Yeah. See, I was see, I thought that part made sense. Simply because Eve was so much younger than her aunt. And I don't know, for me, it was just kind of like Peter Parker versus Miles Morales when they get, you know, Peter Parker's been at it. You know, when we uh, meet Miles, Peter Parker's been at it for years and uh, we've kind of seen his origin story. But, you know, when we meet Miles, he's new. He's got a, you know thinking back to our very first you know season one episode one into spider-verse like miles is figuring out how to swing and things like that where i can see that as sort of being the same situation with eve where it's just like she's just now learning that she has this ability and she doesn't quite know what it is you know doesn't know how to make sense of it where her aunt like i said just this is a thing i profit from it this is how i get, you know make my money is what it is do you want to know that that is the first Spider-Verse reference of this season? So I do think we should maybe have a sound effect for that because it's going to happen <laughs> regularly, I think, throughout the season. Just want to note those special like, moments. We'll figure out a, yeah. or a Spidey sense tingle. Just going to be comic book noises, just like, bam, smash, whoop. <laughs> so if Mike Ryder is listening to this, just 
think about some sort of you know spider type sound effect that we could add in there season three when we're on video there's gonna be bams and smashes all over the place no it should be it should be the line uh everyone fits and you know everyone or is it the suit fits eventually but i do think i would have liked them to like develop eve's development of hers because so much of this film is a coming of age film like not just for eve her sister starts to grow up gets her first period goes through this whole like sort of like sexual awakening type thing she starts to become older she cuts her hair and gets it done etc like you've got eve you know suddenly becoming more aware of who her parents really are and what her family is really like and developing apparently these superpowers that they don't really explore her playing with the same way it would have been nice to actually see her do more of that some of it comes into play with her interactions with elzora the the voodoo witch but it's still very light in the film are are we ready to head to spoiler territory because i think that there's some interesting stuff with elzora there i feel like we've already been in spoiler territory for like the last 10 minutes <laughs> well it's a 24 year old film but i do think that we can say right now if you have not seen this film and you would like to see this film without spoilers now is the time to cut us off go find the film um, you can you can find it on Amazon and other places to to watch if you're interested. Um, if you're okay with spoilers, then um, keep on. There'll be yep, some it's also here. available, I believe, on Tubi, T-U-B-I, uh, yep. for free with ads, which uh, <coughs> you can get around with an ad blocker. <coughs> um, but it's... Uh, if you were to do that, yeah. we're not saying you should. We're just saying that you could. You should just watch all of the five-minute DT ads every, like, 30 minutes in this movie. Was I the only person looking for a croc and alligator in this movie? These people are really blasé about living in a swamp. <laughs> I was constantly waiting for an alligator. We get one snake scare, and that's it. Nobody falls into, like, a swamp. There's not a single leech. We got nothing. Just a waste of a great locale. Okay, uh, so on, on the spoiler side, the... The falling action of the movie is basically we find out that, or rather, uh, Cecily and Eve finally have a discussion about, like, the big thing that happened. Like, there's a big storm, Roz and, um, Roz and Lewis have a big fight, and there is this, this like, fateful interaction, horrible interaction between uh, Lewis and his daughter, his daughter Celise, and... The story that that we get to Eve is that her father forced himself on his own daughter. She came down to comfort him after after the fight. And she's really upset and she won't talk to anyone. And her parents actually call in, like, you know, call a psychologist and talk to her. And they, they send her away for treatment. But Eve is noticeably distraught and... In the process, her sister tells her that she did believe her when he, uh, Eve, Eve, you know, tries to spill the beans about her father's infidelity early in the movie. Sorry, uh, Sicily, not Celise. Um, Sicily, you know, tells her that's not what happened. This is what happened and gaslights her. You know, at, in this moment, in her vulnerability about what she's saying happens, she admits that she believed her little sister about what her dad was doing even at the time. And that she just lied basically to to keep the peace and stability in the house because of, you know, her overarching love for their father. And that sets uh, Eve on a path of revenge, of voodoo-tinged revenge. And there's a, 
there's a pretty incredible moment when she she takes 20 bucks to which is a lot of money at this time and goes to Elzora the the swamp witch and says hey i need you know i want somebody dead and her she she had gone to her auntie and her auntie was just like you can't kill people with this you know and like you know go on do something else you know you don't want to mess with that stuff but Elzora takes her seriously and is like this is what i'm going to need you know come back in a few days and you know when she does she goes okay well where's the voodoo doll where's the stuff i stick the pins in and Elzora's like it's already done and you gave me the stuff and you paid me the money so like it's it's kind of already already in the system you know your your check is processing <laughs> of <laughs> for lack of a better term and i actually thought that the 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 naivete about the voodoo itself about what it could do what it couldn't do about how it actually worked and her childlike understanding of what what those powers did and how they could be used was actually really interesting you know her auntie clearly practices pr- practices it and does it for all the folks in the town she's seen the kinds of things it can do but at the same time this family is pretty upper crust they like have so many things they're, they're sitting around reading Shakespeare and wearing pretty clothes. Like, I, I think that the, I thought that I could just completely control the, the way that this religion is used to do my bidding. And I could take it back if I felt like it, or I could, you know, decide to decide to go back on my feelings or, or wait for the right time. Just didn't line up with the reality of how it was being used. And I thought that that was like a really kind of heartbreaking and like fascinating growing up moment. Of realizing that you've already set in motion something that you can't take back. I thought that aspect of the in the conversation around voodoo with Elzora was particularly interesting. That, that she did try to sort of control the situation like she had tried to control everything else. The one thing that I thought was a little bit weird, not even really with that scene, but with a scene earlier with Elzora, is I wasn't sure if her voodoo was real in the same way that Moselle's was because we didn't see, and and maybe this would have been heavy handed, but we didn't see a vision or anything when Elzora does the reading on Roz earlier in the movie. And so I had a, a little bit of a thought process of like, well, maybe this isn't real. Like maybe she is a grifter, sort of like what Moselle says. And then the actions at the end of the movie are like, oh no, like she's the real deal. Like she knows what's going on. I find that interesting because I actually like I think both things are true, honestly. So I think that I think that Elzor is the real thing because her vision to Roz is very specific. She says, you have you're unhappy. You have a problem. It will be resolved by the end of the summer. Look to your children. Um, what she did also was you'll be happy again in three years. And I do wonder, like, does that is that, you know, when Roz like remarries? Is she over it at that point? Like, that's a very specific time frame. But she's right. It was over by the end of, like, the problem did resolve itself, not in the way that she thought. It's exactly what happened, technically. And so it was very specific. And look to your children, because they're actually kind of the cause, right? The reason... two out of three. The, the actual, actual practical reason that... <laughs> two out of three. Poe, again, completely harmless, sweet little kid. The James of the story. Everyone <laughs> loves. And it's great. Um, but the two girls, I uh, causing all sorts of problems up and around town. 
where like the the kids are actually what caused the death of their father. I mean, actually, it's his own behavior causes his death, but it's uh, pushed along by Eve, essentially like whispering into the ear of the the husband of the woman that her dad's cheating with. Lenny. Thank you. Um, but at the same time, then later when um, Eve does get the or does does go to Elzora and is hoping for her voodoo doll and finds out and said that it was a curse. And their dad's dead. Elzora kind of like, as she's processing that, Elzora kind of like smiles a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. And that made me wonder if actually she hadn't done anything, but she just wanted her to, she wanted to freak her out, right? Like she knows mm. that she's, she probably figured out that it was her dad that she was after. There's only so many people in her family. She keeps referring to him. Um, I doubt it was her little brother, again, the perfect angel that anyone wanted to hurt. And was probably just trying to like teach her a lesson in a lot of ways. And the dad's death at the hands of the jilted husband um, was coincidental. But you don't really know for sure, which is also like a common theme in the movie, that you never really know for sure what happened. But I do find it interesting that I think that she she exemplifies not knowing in a lot of ways. Was it really coincidental? Because that whole one, just that whole funny interaction between uh uh eve and lenny was super funny that was that that was whereas you could just coincidental to elzora not coincidental in general yeah she definitely started that gotcha but (laughs) that was amazing so much swagger but even still really was it coincidental because uh uh lewis uh he kind of he kind of you know went for that last jab that guys tend to go for where it's just like the whole situation's resolved and then you know i gotta get my little last like dig you know dig at this guy and then it's like okay now it's popped off so like i wonder if it was really coincidental more of just like oh no the he kind of did it to himself not just because of the situation but because just in that moment he went too far can i talk about a theory i have about what happened with uh Elzora? Before you get to that, I just want to mention one one thing that I just realized after Andre said that. This movie punishes the people who get the last word in in every fight. Because like <laughs> Harry gets the last word in, dead. Lewis gets the last word in, dead. Just saying, maybe you should let it go. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, maybe uh the director just trying to send us a message. I do want to say this is an all-female team almost. So, like, the no back talk <laughs> could have been an actual lesson they wanted everyone to learn. Entirely True. fair. Um, I, I I think that, like, my theory about Elzora was that, you know, in the intro monologue, we hear about how Eve is named after the the, the slave woman that, the, that this town is named after, this town or village or whatever we're calling this weird swampy municipality and and that the you know all those things go along with it and that you know she had 16 kids with you know jean jean paul baptiste who was the the her slave owner who freed her and and thanks for thanks for her for her help and but she says like when she's talking about the the curse she says that I made him a wax coffin. I stuffed it in, uh, in like a rattlesnake, and I buried it down where all you other Baptists are buried. And like the snap of that, very much felt like a, okay, maybe Roz doesn't like her because there's like some family 
some family stuff there with Elzora that we don't get to see. Like, it's it's not an uncommon trope for the Witch of the Woods or whatever to be, you know, spurned previously in her life and gets revenge with her powers and magic. That's a, a fairly common trope in a lot of, in a lot of, like, classic, classic literature. And I kind of thought that that's what was happening in the in the moment here. This this is just a chance to like to to really just stick it to this family that is named after the, like the, the the science of this town. The the doctor who has all this power and runs around burning all these marriages, probably making a lot more work for her uh, <laughs> as a as a town witch. But that that was definitely my theory after. Like I said, this is my second time watching it. And so I, I kept thinking about that uh, along the ways of, you know, you see her show up a couple times during funeral scenes and she'll like appear and disappear in a really particularly creepy manner. And it very much felt like a, like, is this is just a specific, like, screw this family <laughs> uh, kind of, kind of energy that Elzora had, which was why she was like willing to take on a fatal curse request from a 10 year old. Which I don't know if there's like a Hippocratic oath for uh, Hoodoo practitioners, but I feel like that would likely be up there. I don't think so. What I do find interesting is that Moselle says you can't kill someone with voodoo. Pretty clearly to Eve, which I also think like calls into question: Can you kill someone with voodoo? And did essentially Elzora kill someone with voodoo, or is she just essentially someone who's the family's just blaming? She's just a boogeyman for them. Also, too, I'm thinking about that trope, that trope comment. It's just like, oh, yeah, no, that's Disney, too. You yep. don't even have to go that far back to old literature. That's just straight up Disney. <laughs> yeah, it's tried and true and it works. Mm. So we're we're coming up in an hour now. So I want to, like, start to wrap this up. But I do think that we can't end without actually talking about what happened at the end of the movie. And so this is specifically around the story that Cicely tells her sister and thus the viewer about their dad molesting her. And at the end of the movie, Eve finds a, a letter that her dad had written to his sister that disputes essentially that version and says that Cicely came on to him and that in his surprise, he smacked her and then she's angry at him, which calls into question, was she molested or did she do something that she felt guilty about and essentially lie to protect herself and to kind of punish her father, which is what led to her little sister basically got a, a, get a voodoo fueled vendetta. What do you think? You never actually find out. There's a, like Eve gets a vision, but you never see the vision and you don't really know. I, 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 I came away from it thinking that Cicely lied and that the vision is why Eve was more sure than just the letter. Like part of me doesn't think that even, even with her guilt that the letter alone would have changed her mind without a vision, a different vision of the night's events. And I think that's the reason why she was like she didn't come and go like, like like didn't she she shows up and she's like you liar <laughs> you lying liar who lies and I don't know it, it, it's 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 a little Rashomon uh, which I mentioned is one of my favorite movies and so like I enjoyed watching it again from a different perspective but I definitely believe like I I can't wait believing the version like Lewis's version in the in the text more just because of how we see Cicely in some of those earlier scenes. She's often just trying to be real grown. Um, she's in the, in the beginning party, she's drink, she's stealing sips of champagne from the tray. 
she like goes out and gets her hair like her hair pressed uh, and curled and is styled like her mother's. You know, she literally talks back at her mother and says like, "You're being too immature. Like you need to you need to grow up. Like, you need to be more mature. You shouldn't be mad at daddy." And a whole lot of other things that like show intense intensely abnormal attraction growing. And I think that the the case made by Lewis in the in the letter is pretty can easily be sort of supported by all of those things in hindsight. It's also we don't have any other motivations for Cicely doing anything other than wanting to please her father. Like there's I don't think there's anything else about that character at all that shows up or or sticks around other than wanting to be grown and wanting to please her father. I'm inclined to agree with you, Ryan, but it goes against like my normal response. Like my normal response would, would, would be, well, I'm less likely to believe Lewis because the adult in this scenario likely has more to lose. However, I think the movie supports that Lewis's story was probably the most accurate of the two. I wouldn't be surprised if what really happened was some mix of both, but I definitely think that the creators of the movie wanted us to believe Lewis's version of the story. Andre, what do you think? I don't know. Lewis got captured in 4K, you know, early on in the movie, but that one it just seemed like, oh, well, they're they're letting him off the hook there, so... I don't know, I always, like, when I got to that scene, I was just like, all right, like, I really wasn't convinced that uh, the implication from the story early on from Cicely was uh, that he molested her, but I don't know, I just read that whole situation, I guess, I guess I read that whole situation differently, it was just like, oh, it's, it's way less, see, how do I want to put this? It's way less clear cut. Yeah, like the situation, like the situation was already gray. Now it's a lot grayer than, you know, than it was before. That's the way I read that. I mean, I have to say that, like, there, like the quote that showed up in my head um, was a Samuel L. Jackson quote from A Time to Kill with the, yes, they deserve to die and I hope they burn in hell. And it's just like he was going to get got by some husband or family member at some point down the line that Rolling Stone was going to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, how it happened and like when it happened and why it happened, all of those things are somewhat inconsequential. Like, I, I think that, you know, he chose his own downfall. And and also, he literally asked for it. <laughs> and then at the very end, he literally asked for it because he just can't keep his mouth shut. Yeah. I, I, I'm also inclined to think that there's like, the truth is likely somewhere a blend between the two stories and both of them are tragic and both of them are like really messed up. Um, and yeah, like I, I think that thinking about the, that, that kind of resolution and one of the last scenes of the movie we get while, when we repeat the opening monologue of, you know, I was 10 years old the summer that I killed my father, which is what a great opening line uh, is actually, Eve and Cicely taking the taking that letter and 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 drowning it down into the marsh, which I didn't catch the first time I 
watch the film, but this time I was like, like oh, like like this, this joint decision just to bury this truth was a really poignant way to like end that film. Yeah, it kind of ends it on their sisterhood as opposed to anything else, right? They've made a decision to come together, and regardless of the bad feelings, they're basically going to go forward together. And regardless of what happened, actually, it doesn't really even matter whether it was Cicely that did it or whether it was Lewis at that point, because they've decided that no one else ever actually needs to know. One thing I thought about the letter was that it, from Lewis's perspective, it showed a level of self-awareness in Lewis that like nothing else in this movie showed, which is one of the reasons why I think it feels a little weird. It's like, dude, you're like sleeping with literally everyone in town, but like now you're going to show like some serious concern about what's going on with your kids when you like haven't really seemed to be that into it before. But I don't know. I, I will say that this is one of the, does Samuel L. Jackson raise his voice even once in this movie? Nope. Nope. I don't think so. He's actually very chill. The whole time he doesn't he doesn't act even when he's being accosted he doesn't lash out he's just like no it's fine right he's he's uber confident basically so he has no reason to get defensive or aggressive yeah if there was a time he'd raise his voice he would have been in that situation with um uh what's his name at the very beginning harry yeah yeah would be harry yeah when they were both drunk and getting into that uh fight but even still, it didn't seem like it's that loud. And there's a fight with Roz in the storm that was more Roz than him. In a lot of ways. Part of me is wondering whether the shock of him hitting her was so so much because he's like shown as such like a doting, you know, like he spoils her rotten as his eldest. He dances with her at the party and everything. Like he's constantly just indulging her and we never literally never see this man raise raise his voice and he slaps her and he slaps her in the face hard and and so i think that the shock from that like uh the the line that i believe uh cecily says is that he hurt me he hurt me bad and is left open to whether that's physical whether that was like sexual whether that was emotional and i think that's actually it's it's really heartbreaking uh uh dialogue dialogue writing and, and script writing like I, I think that it's effective at getting you to feel the turmoil really well like like yeah this this movie is really underappreciated like even if i don't like all the parts of it it's hard to think of movies that they handle something like this in a way that actually cohered in the way that it felt like at least emotionally even if all the plot points didn't resolve even if all the things didn't come through i i don't know how i feel about the the sisterhood at the end of the the film, I feel like it's a little underdeveloped, a little underbaked. But yeah, like I, I definitely think that this movie like achieved a lot of things in the process. So on that note, final thoughts on the film. Let's start with James. Uh, so I'm glad we had this conversation. Like, I still think there's a lot of interesting things in this movie. I. Th- think more people should watch this movie it's a rare case of like ryan mentioned earlier a coming of age story focused around a young black woman which is very uncommon uh i still don't love the movie and like i don't think i would watch it again uh but i'm glad i at least watched it i think it's fairly interesting look at 
this kind of story. I just I wish it had either focused on some slightly different things or sort of came together in a better package um, than what it ended up coming together as. Ryan, what about you? I kept on w- mentally inserting the ten- uh, Temptations singing uh, Papa Was Rolling Stone during a lot of interstitial scenes. And, you know, like I, I think that this movie manages to pull off some of the things it's trying to do. It doesn't manage to pull off others well. I definitely, like, that. that's really clear to me after our conversation about some of the things that just didn't work. But I, I think that anything that gets to that sort of Southern Gothic black mysticism uh, of sorts is just kind of rare to be done in a way that's like any kind of respectful instead of just really, you know, trashy. And, and so this, this was interesting for me and I, I really enjoy the sense of place that the, that the film gave me of walking along those, those gorgeous big trees uh, with, you know, with uh, weeping leaves and seeing the, the, the swamp and the boardwalks in between, it, it very much felt like, in the, in the same way that we talked about other movies that were actually adapted from stage plays, I don't think this was an adaptation, but it very much had some of the feel of, feel of this world is contained. You know, the world of Ease Bayou doesn't have, doesn't need outside spaces to tell a story. Everything that it needs to tell this drama, this melodrama, is right here in this household and in this little town. And I didn't feel wanting for much of anything. So I thought it was definitely interesting. I definitely think people should watch it, especially for free. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting look at a film. And I believe that this was a directorial debut. And honestly, a pretty incredible one, if that's your debut. Andre, what about you? For me, initially when I was thinking about this between watching a movie and the podcast, I was thinking this movie reminded me of the Indiana Pacers, where they're not good, but they're not bad. They're just in the middle. And I realized that that was a terrible analogy because after talking about it, it reminded me a lot more of our discussion of Finding Forrester, where like it's good, but it's very flawed. And that you're gonna have the audience kind of sit either, either, you know, this is a good movie, I love this movie, and not for me, and I definitely am in that not for me camp. Um, especially too, once I looked up some of the cast and the director's credits, it's just like, wait, this is the same director that made Talk to Me. I really want to go watch that movie now. For me, one of the things with this film, um, that we haven't really talked about a lot that I think is at least worth a brief mention is that it's, for me, it's very female film. It's not just because it has a female director and cinematographer and editor, but like the cast is carried by the women characters, right? Like there are male characters obviously there, but they're really just in some ways plot points in a lot of cases, including Lewis. And that the real drama is actually all about like the female characters in the family which I really love. And I think that it's also signifies this movie was made in the late, later 90s. And I think there was a whole spate of movies coming out that time that really just were about black women, right? Things like Waiting to Exhale or Stellar's Got a Groove Back. Like the whole 90s were full of this like black womanhood that you didn't, you don't really get a lot of now, but was really nice to have like for a moment. And I kind of love that. It was a golden age. <laughs> it was a golden age of how amazing it is to be a black woman and also how challenging. And I think that 
to the point of more movies that people can see like that, the better, because it does just present lots of different interesting slices of what it means to be a black woman. And I also think that like my main takeaway from this is that I aspire someday to be just like Elzora in her Shrek style swamp house, um, just being baller, <laughs> freaking out little kids. That's literally the dream. Keep keeping your divining bones in a crown royal bag. Yeah. That's all I want, right? Like, the no makeup, she looked great. She got great skin, so whatever that white paint was, it's working for her. Just think I, I assumed that. it was like an Aztec clay mask. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deep cut. Um. Yeah. So on that note, we will uh, wrap up the first episode of the second season of the uh, Black Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us. If you want to take a second to go um, find a copy of Eve's Bayou, I definitely recommend watching it and seeing if you fall into the yes, I liked this camp or no, I didn't camp. And if so, tell us what you thought on Twitter. Um, reach out to us on Twitter at BLK Movie Podcasts. Or go to blackmoviepodcast.com to find this podcast. Anywhere podcasts are played, aired, and findable. Let's have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Thank you.